1 Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to look at verses 2 and 7. So we've been looking at the qualifications of an overseer, and uh, we looked at how these qualifications aren't something that's expected of a pastor and no one else. All of them, except for two of them, maybe three, you might could argue, are really expected of all of us as believers. It's things that we should all be exhibiting because of our new nature and our life in Christ. So we've looked at several of these qualifications Individually, We've looked at being above reproach, uh, being the husband of one wife in faithful relationships. We've looked at being sober-minded, self-controlled, uh, not being a drunkard. And so this week, we're uh, going to move on to the next one. So I'm going to call your attention to verse 2 in 1 Timothy chapter 3. It says, Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, And then we come to this word, respectable. And I'm going to call your attention down to verse 7 also. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So we're going to first start by looking at the word respectable here. We've kind of been doing this for individual words because it's one thing for us to say respectable Uh, But we really want to know, well, what is the intended meaning of this word? We don't have a lot of context in the verse, so it's helpful to kind of look at other uses of the word. So this word respectable, the Greek definition for that can translate to orderly, of good behavior, modest, and then decorous. So it's the idea of appearing appearing positively. It's used one other time in Scripture. And we've read it in 1 Timothy. It's in 1 Timothy 2.9. It says, likewise, he, he says that men should pray, lifting holy hands, not in anger. And he says, likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty, self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So the use of it here to describe apparel seems to kind of line up with our use here with this qualification of overseers. It's the idea of appearing positively. When it's used of clothing, it's not talking about behavior. It's talking about appearance. But when it's used of a person, I don't think what it's saying is we want to look nice because the passage just in chapter 2 said don't worry about that as much as you worry about good works. So when it's talking about a respectable Person, we have to ask the question, well, what does a respectable person look like? What is it that they want us to do to be respectable? How does that flesh out? It's helpful to kind of look back at this verse 9 again, talking about respectable clothing. What is respectable clothing in this verse? It says they should adorn themselves with respectable apparel. And then it describes that. What does that look like? With modesty. Self-control, not flamboyant, but what's proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So a respectable person would be a modest person, a person who is not flamboyant, a person who is equipped with good works and godliness, someone who is self-controlled. And more specifically, it's going to be someone who that is evident from the outside. So it's not so much that I'm that, though that's true. It's I'm that in such a way that everybody else can see that about me. 
Sometimes we are more like ourselves when we are not around other people. And for those of you that are husbands and wives, you'll get this. You get with your close family or siblings, you'll get this. You get with your family, and the true you kind of comes out. And then you go back out into the world, the, the real world, but then you're less real than the real world. And you give this appearance, but then it's not true on the inside because when you get home, it's different. So it's not like that, like this fake putting on something that's not genuine. Rather, it's something that is genuine to the point of overflowing where others can't help but see that, and that becomes your reputation. That's the idea here behind this respectable. It's that others who look from the outside would see a modest, self-controlled, orderly, godly person. And that leads us to our second phrase here in verse 7, which is why we're doing this together. In verse 7, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace into a snare of the devil. So same thing here. What does it mean to be well thought of by outsiders? The phrase well thought of here can also be translated reputation or witness. It's to have a good reputation or witness, but it's a little bit deeper than that. I was really surprised as I got to looking at this. The word here for thought of is the word martyria, where we get the English word martyr. And I remember looking at that and thinking, I'm looking at the wrong verse. I, the word martyr is not in this verse. In my, in my translation, I must be looking at the wrong, and I triple check, and I'm like, that's it. That's how they're translating that. So to be well thought of by outsiders is to have the type of witness that a martyr would have. Well, what happens to martyrs? They die for their faith. They're not well thought of by outsiders. So then what does it mean to be well thought of by outsiders and to have this good witness? It means to be a good witness to outsiders, but not in such a way that all outsiders are going to like you or think that you're good. In 1 Peter 2, uh, 11 through 12, I think it gives us a really good example of this. <clears throat> I'm going to read it for you. It says 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. And we looked at this briefly a couple of weeks ago when we talked about submitting to authorities. We said that this kind of is our whole goal for that submission. So verse 11 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So looking at verse 12, to be a good witness means to have honorable Conduct. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. It's to live a life of godliness. But look at how the Gentiles, similar to the outsiders in 1 Timothy, look at how they respond to this conduct. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. When they see your conduct, they speak evil against you. They don't agree with the things that you're doing. The things that you do that you say these are good and right. They look at it and say, well, that's wrong. 
And we see that in our culture today. Where standing up for what we think is right is being called wrong. And what is wrong is being called right. It's wrong for us to say pronouns should match your sex. He is the word we have for man. We shouldn't confuse biology. Well, someone would look at that today and say, well, that's hurtful to this other person. We don't think you're being a good moral person when you do that. We have two different ideas of what this is. So this is what's going to happen. When your conduct is honorable, they might speak against you as evildoers, but then look again immediately after that in verse 12 what it says. It says that when they speak against you as evildoers, that's going to happen. But look what follows. They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So in a moment, they see your good deeds and they hate you for it. But the hope is that after coming through that over time, they have nothing evil they can really say about you. When the Lord convicts them over these things, they can't look at you and say, yeah, but you're always a jerk. Yeah, but you lie all the time. That's something that they want to use against you so that they don't have to deal with the conviction that they feel in those different areas that we disagree with them on. They want that ammunition. They have no choice, hopefully, but to acknowledge your good works before the Lord. That's what it is to have a good witness. It's to say, despite what everyone thinks about me, I've done what is right with self-control In a modest way, hoping that everyone would see that and turn and praise the Lord for it. Well, it's going to be very difficult to do that when in one breath you're doing all of these good things, but then in the next breath, fill in the blank. These fleshly desires. In the next breath, you can't seem to control your anger. You're constantly exploding at people. At work or at home. You can't control your impulses to keep you from looking at things on the computer you shouldn't be looking at. You can't control your impulses to not talk about other people so that you can justify your actions at their expense. Those things are going to ruin our witness. So how do these good works make you a witness? How is, this that, how is that that this happens? Back in verse 11, so that was 12, in verse 11 in 1 Peter, he starts this whole thing off by saying, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. In verse 10, he starts this by saying, you were once not God's people, now you are God's people. So because you're God's people now, you are now tourists on earth. You don't belong here. There's a Christian song that says something to the effect of, all I know is I'm not home yet. This is not where I belong. And we don't. I am a citizen of America, second. I'm a citizen of Christ's kingdom first. That's the idea. So my citizenship in Christ's kingdom and Christ is my king means that that should govern everything in my life primarily. And then my secondary citizenship kicks in in those additional areas. 
That's the idea. So since we are sojourners, we're exiles, we're tourists, we're travelers, this isn't our home. What that means is that my identity as a citizen of God's kingdom should overflow into certain actions that look out of place here. There's going to be some countries that you go to, and if you go for a handshake like this, say, how y'all doing? You're going to get some funny looks. That's not how they act there. They don't do those types of things there. That's the idea here. There are some things that we do as believers that don't fit in where we're at. They don't fit in in our culture. People are going to look at that and say, well, that's different. And it's okay that they say that. You can still be a good witness. That's what it is to be a good witness in that moment. So this new citizenship comes with a new way of life. And this is the message of the gospel that we bring. Those who come to Christ will be born again and will become a new creation. And when we're living according to that citizenship, our life confirms our message. Imagine what it would look like to tell the world, yeah, when you come to Christ, you're different. And then they look at you and they say, well, you use, all, you use the same language we use every day. You're not different. And that's how it comes together. The way that we live our lives and our conduct is a witness to the gospel or it's a witness against the gospel. That's why pursuing holiness is so important. Pursuing holiness is not important because it's going to earn your place in heaven. Your place in heaven is already earned or it isn't. You're going or you're not going regardless of how much good you try to do. It is all dependent upon the cross. If you are in Christ, you're going. If you're not in Christ, you're not going. Our holiness is an overflow of that reality. I am going to the kingdom of heaven, so that holiness overflows because I'm a citizen. I, mean, I can't help but living this way. It should naturally come out. So the world knows that the gospel is true by looking at the testimony in our lives. As we abstain from the passions of the flesh, our lives testify to our new citizenship. So this is what it means to be well thought of by outsiders. It's for your life to consistently confirm your Christianity. To be well thought of by outsiders is this. Not that people might like you, because they might not. It's for your life to consistently confirm your Christianity. That is a good witness to outsiders, whether they like you for it or they don't. So now in the context of looking at overseers, back here in 1 Timothy, the question becomes, well, how do you quantify this? You know, if you're in an interview process and you're trying to gauge a candidate, that's essentially what this list is. How do you quantify and be able to put your finger on and say, this is it or this isn't it? It's very difficult to do. At the very least, we can at least say this based on our study so far. It is to have a reputation that is free from the stain of sin. In Second Peter. It is to abstain from fleshly desires. I want you to consider two individuals. You've got one individual who does good. Okay, check. But then they also do bad. Okay, 
X. So doing good, that confirms. But then doing bad, oh, okay, that kind of works against you. You've got a second individual who does not do good. Okay, that works against you, not good. But they also don't do bad. Okay, check. Don't do bad, but I don't do good. So the first candidate, they do good things, but they also do bad things. Second candidate, they don't do any good things, but they don't do anything bad. Who is more likely, reflect on this for a minute, of those two, who is more likely to have a better reputation? It's probably the person that never does anything bad. The person who does something good, I don't care how much good they do, they do something bad. That's what they're going to be known for. When people go online and leave reviews for products, some people get on there and they leave the five-star review and it's helpful. But most people, like me, I'm only going to leave a review if I'm mad about the product. Like, this didn't work, right? I'm going to go leave a review. And I get on there and type it up. Like, that's the thing that sticks in our mind is the thing that they did bad. So at the very least, this having a reputation free from the stain of sin, at the very least, would help us to quantify what does it look like to consistently confirm your Christianity through your conduct. We don't easily destroy our witness by failing to do something good. We may weaken it, but we don't easily destroy it. But your witness is very easily destroyed when you engage in sin by doing what is evil. That is a great way to lose your witness and your testimony. To this day, I have people that if I were to approach them with the gospel, they would probably laugh because they know what kind of person I used to be. All it takes is one thing, and that's what's going to stick in their minds for a long, long time. I used to tell this to students. It's kind of like your name, your reputation, trust. It's all the same. It is really easy to lose it. And it is so hard to get it back. It takes a long time. You can lose it in 10 seconds flat. And it might take you 10 months or 10 years to get that back. And it's the same thing with our witness here. So at the very least, a good witness is one that is free from unholy living, but that's only half the picture. You can think about it in two categories like this. There are sins of commission where you commit a sin. I have done something wrong. And then sins of omission where I have omitted what I ought to have done. I didn't do the right thing. So it's doing something bad or failing to do something good. Doing something bad is only half the picture. And I think for most of us probably we don't really fall into this as often. I think the one that's probably more common is failing to do what we ought to do. Knowing that I ought to do something and I just didn't do it. And most other people will never think anything about us for it. They will never look at us and say, Garrett didn't hold the door for a lady that was 15 feet away. I cannot believe. Probably won't catch that. Probably won't. Probably won't ruin your witness as easily. But it's still equally commanded. And it's still equally important. Part of our respectable, honorable, good conduct is keeping from committing evil acts. But part of it is omitting 
good acts destroying that witness. We need to engage in those works. Later in 1 Timothy, to kind of give you a scriptural basis for this idea, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, we're going to look at it in more detail when we get there. But in verse uh, 24, he's talking, the context of this, he's talking about um, elders ruling and how we should, they should be worthy of double honor, especially the ones that preach and teach. And then a little bit further down in verse 22, he says, Don't be hasty in laying on of hands to ordain these men. And he gives a reason in verse 24. Why? Why don't you just quickly ordain these guys? Because, verse 24, the sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment. But the sins of others appear later. So you don't want to rush because you may not see it up front, but it will eventually come out in the open. Likewise, verse 25, so also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. So if they are engaging in good works, you give it enough time and you will see it. It will come out. You can't keep that hidden. So that's kind of where we're getting this category of doing bad and uh, uh, engaging in something bad and not doing something that's good. So if we were to summarize these qualifications real simple – how might, we, how might we word it? Our conduct, as Christians, our conduct confirms our calling by what we do and by what we don't do. That's what it is. Our conduct confirms our calling by what we do and by what we don't do. This is so, so important because I don't know if you picked up on the last phrase we haven't looked at in verse 7 here in 1 Timothy chapter 3. He must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. The reason that this is so important is because the enemy uses it as a snare for Christians to attack the church. Satan is a tactician. And he's been doing what he does a lot longer than we've been alive. He's had thousands of years of practice. I've had 30. Two. He's got me beat. Some of you may be thinking, well, I'm close to him. You ain't that close. Thousands of years. He is very smart, and he knows what he's doing. But greater is the one in us than the one that's in the world. And the one that's in us is commanding us here. Here's how you avoid the snare. For your pastors, here's how you make sure that they avoid that snare. Ephesians 6 points to the devil's schemes, and it instructs us to put on the armor of God. One of Satan's strategies in destroying the work of God through the church is by destroying the witness of its pastors. When it comes to our pastors, it is much better to potentially offend this brother seeking to become a pastor than to let him pastor the church recklessly and to ruin its witness. It's a hard saying, but it's true. It is vital especially for our pastors, that we protect our witness and our conduct. Jesus gives us an analogy in Matthew 7, 15 through 20. I'm actually going to go read it. 
And it's the analogy of uh, tree and fruits. It's a very famous passage in the Sermon on the Mount here. Matthew 7, I'm going to read uh, 15 through 20. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. So the fruit tells us what the tree is. The tree doesn't make itself what it is through sheer willpower in producing the right fruit. The fruit reveals the nature of the tree. What changes the tree? Christ changes the tree. We don't change ourselves. Jesus changes us, and we go from a diseased tree to a healthy tree. But sometimes we're diseased, and we hear the instruction to bear good fruit, and we think, okay, I'll stop being diseased if I can start bearing good fruit. That's not how it works. Christ brings this change about. And then the fruit starts to produce from us. And our instruction is, allow that fruit to be born. Some of us, I think sometimes, we hear instructions like this and we think, I'm not bearing good fruit. I'm actually bearing bad fruit. And we think the solution is, I need to try harder to bear good fruit. What I'm telling you is, that's not the solution. That's your problem. The solution is Christ will completely transform you into a healthy tree that bears good fruit. And then it won't be such a burden to bear that fruit. It will come out naturally from within us. I want to point out that this is exactly how we know that Jesus is the Messiah. This everything I just said is true of Jesus. Think about John 3 when he talks to Nicodemus. Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. Why? For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. The fruits confirmed who Jesus was. In Acts chapter 10, verse 37, Peter says this. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. Pilate, in Luke 23... He looked at Jesus. He is being condemned to death. He looks at Jesus and says, I don't see any guilt in this man. Jesus' works confirmed who he was. He did nothing wrong. He did good constantly. And then he died to save people like us who always do wrong and we always fail to do good. That's the gospel. Everyone around him knew this about him. And he did this so that we might follow his example. He desires for us likewise 
to follow him in this way. This is part of following Jesus. Watch how you live among outsiders. Be holy and honorable in your conduct in order to strengthen your witness. That's our calling as Christians. We are to confirm what's happened to us through our conduct. So here's some questions for us to meditate on and dwell on. I think the number one reason, especially if I reflect on my own life, that I fall into those sinful actions or that I fail to do what's good is that I'm not mindful of those things. It's like life is on fast forward. I don't know how many of you listen to podcasts, but I listen to a lot of them at times two speed because I just don't have enough time in the day. Like I, I want to listen to this, but I need to hurry up, so I'll click it up to double speed, and it's all real fast. We get through, and if you're not careful, you can easily just fall into this thing where you're just letting it go by and you're not absorbing. And I think it's like with our lives sometimes in that we go through the day so quick and then we don't process and say, well, what have I accomplished today? How have I listened to God's voice and followed through today? How have I listened to God's voice and rejected it today? Maybe it would be good for us to take a quick moment now and say, how is my life bearing fruit that constantly confirms my calling as a Christian? Or how is my life failing to bear fruit that confirms that calling? That's what it is to be respectable, to be well thought of by outsiders. This better be true of our pastors. It better be true of me. It better be true of Terry. But it also better be true of all of us. We're all Christians. We're all called to follow Christ in this way. I've got a passage I want to read um, as we close. Just kind of a uh, send out for us that summarizes this really well. If you want to meditate on this later, I encourage you to do that. It's Ephesians 5, 1 through 15. In fact, this might be good for the next week. And really, I would even say for the next month. I had a professor that made me do this, and I'm glad he did. But if you want an extra challenge, take this passage of Scripture, Ephesians 5, 1 through 15. And whatever your normal Bible reading is, don't let this take its place. But add this to your daily Bible reading and read this passage of Scripture every day for one month. And this is the way that he encouraged us to meditate on Scripture. And I haven't forgotten it, and I'm grateful he's done it. And uh, when you finish up with this one, if you've got another one, do it with another chapter. There are several good ones to pick from. But let me read this for us to kind of um, end our time together and get us thinking. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead... Let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, 
For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. I'm going to add verse 16, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for purchasing us, bringing us into your kingdom forgiving us of our unrighteousness, forgiving us when we fail to do what is good and right and true. God, I thank you for indwelling within us through the Holy Spirit, for equipping us to fight against our temptation. God, I ask that you would strengthen us and make us imitators of you. Cause us to walk in such a way that when the world sees us, they see little versions of Christ walking among them. That they might look at our works and be confused and be amazed and ultimately glorify you on the day of visitation. God, would you give us strength to flee from the pleasures of sin that deceive us into thinking that We can find our joy and satisfaction in them rather than in you. Would you give us a delight in you and your word above the false joy that our fleshly desires promise us? We know that it's empty. Even when we feel that that's not true, Father, we know it because you have told us in your word. So give us a desire for you above those things. Give us wisdom that we might walk in uprightness. Help us to walk as children of light, making the best use of the time, being wise in how we walk instead of unwise, knowing that the days are evil. Father, we want to bear your image to Gina, to Alec, everywhere we go. We want to bear your image so that others might see our good works and glorify you. Father, we love you. We ask all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, for your glory and our good. Amen.